Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8, it's on page 230. Well, it begins on page 230 in your uh, pew Bible and goes on to 231. If you remember, uh, five or six weeks ago, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to remind you a few things about that chapter, but also let me again set the context of where we are in Israel's history. Uh, The time of the judges is coming to an end. Uh, Samuel's uh, reign and rule kind of signifies that. But we haven't yet got to the the time of the kings. In in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, we'll be introduced to Saul for the first time. In chapter 10, that's when he's anointed as king over Israel. So it's kind of a time of transition. In chapter 7, it's an example of Israel getting it right, okay? They, com- they confess their sins and repent. Uh, they fall on their faces before Samuel because the Philistines are coming to attack them. Samuel, don't stop interceding for us. We need God's help. Uh, and so that's exactly what Samuel does. He intercedes for the people. God comes in. He conquers their enemies, and he rescues them. They appeal to the mercy of God only. And that's exactly what they should do, and they have great results, okay? 1 Samuel 8, however, is an example of them not getting it right. They don't fall on the mercy of God. They don't plead with him for his help. And as a result, there's far different results in this story than in 1 Samuel 7. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, but I'm just going to begin by reading the first nine verses. The 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Would you teach us now through it? Lord, would you reveal to us our own idols, the idols of our heart that we look to for satisfaction and security rather than looking to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been driving down the road and you see that car, the car that you really, really want, that you, for years and years, you've lusted, really, after this car so badly, I want my dream car. And so finally, the day comes that you've saved up enough money to buy that car that you've always wanted, and you go and you buy it it brand new from the dealership, and you smile as you look down at the odometer that reads eight miles, like, this is, this is fantastic. Finally, the car of my dreams is mine. There's elation and satisfaction. However, and you likely know this, but the moment that you drive it off the lot, it depreciates greatly in value. And over the coming weeks and months, you're going to have to have the tires rotated, and you're going to have to have the oil changed. And in the coming years, a new set of tires, just as I had to put on one of our cars this week, and that was awful. You're going to have to have brakes replaced and timing belts and and all sorts of things. 
all the while this car that was this wonderful gift just keeps taking from you. And it's, it's depressing a little bit. I know that part of that is, is the general upkeep of a car. I understand it. But the car really does seem to be the gift that keeps on taking from you. At least you know with your house, if I do some upgrades and I, I build an addition, that I'm probably going to see a return in that investment. Not so with your car. It takes and it takes and it takes. The new king in Israel is going to be the same. This gift that the elders of Israel want so much is going to be a gift given to them by God, yet that gift is going to continually take and take and take. He's not going to be the good gift giver that their covenant God is to them, but they don't care. Give us a king, they cry. We want a king to be like the nations. We want a king to judge us. We want a king to go out before us in battle. Everywhere, or every moment of their past, God has provided, he has loved, he has done things for them, but that's no longer enough for Israel and their leadership. They want something more than that. And in short order, they're going to expect from this earthly king only that which their heavenly king can provide for them. What they really want is a truer king, a better king, an eternal king. In our passage this morning, it's time for leadership change in Israel. It's that the elders are kind of coming to Samuel and say, it's time for a succession plan. Let's sit down and talk about this, okay? And we learn that Samuel's sons are not walking in the ways that Samuel had. It says they took bribes and perverted justice. They're not qualified to take over for Samuel. So we've got to look somewhere else. On the one hand, this was wise for the elders to be doing this. Okay, good, let's start planning for what's next. That's great. And it wasn't the request that was sinful either, because as we're going to see in a minute, the request for an earthly king was fine. It's the motivation behind the request. It's why they really wanted this earthly king. Is trusting in a sovereign God enough for you, day in and day out? Does it sustain you? Does it drive you to worship? We worship an invisible triune God. But often we want something we can look at and trust in, rather than an invisible God who loves us and cares for us. We have four points this morning. They're there in your bulletin. Number one is the request. The request that the elders make. The chapter begins by saying when Samuel became old. Okay, We don't know how much time has passed between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but apparently in that amount of time Samuel has become old. Okay, So it, some, some years, it would seem, has passed. Samuel in chapter 7 makes sacrifices for the people. Lord, we have nothing. You've taken everything away. We need your mercy. It's a great place to be for the people of God. Okay, Chapter 8, that's not what happens. Perhaps Israel should have been interested in a leader that did what Samuel did, interceded for them and didn't stop, rather than an earthly king who could give all these perceived comforts and perceived security. You see, Israel doesn't need an earthly king. They have a great heavenly king. And chapter 7 is exhibit A of what this heavenly king will and can do for them. This passage is showing us how quickly we forget all of the things that God has done for us in the past. Israel wants to be like the nations, but they're not like the nations. They're uniquely loved by a unique God who, yes, expects their love and devotion in return, but who has showered things upon them that he hasn't showered on anyone else. But that's not enough, and that's not satisfying to them any longer. As I mentioned, the request for a king wasn't wrong. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20 makes this clear. 
It says this, in part, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. You're going to come to a new land, and you're going to want an earthly king, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, it's got to be somebody that God chooses, and his behavior has got to be something that God uh, gives to him, tells him how he's supposed to live his life. Okay? So there's got to be something more than just the simple request that causes Samuel to be really upset about it, and God to say, no, 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 actually this is a rejection, not just a request. There's motivation. They don't just want, we still love God, but we want an earthly king. They want someone to replace him. They want an earthly king to do what God does for them. It's something more than just asking for an earthly king. We can assume, had they come to God and said, we really want an earthly king, help us out here, that that would have been okay, but that's not what happens in the story. The request is really a rejection. We don't trust God anymore. We're not satisfied with your security and your love and your leadership and your protection. It, it, it's not enough for us anymore. We want something else and we want something different. Even though God had proven himself time and again to them, if, why didn't they just come and say, Samuel, okay, look, we don't exactly know how this transition's going to go, but l- let's all get together and pray to God and throw ourselves on his mercy like we did before and everything turned out fine. They don't do any of that. Israel does here what Israel normally does. They want to worship something that they can see. It's why they built the golden calf in Exodus 32. We want to look at it. We can't see our covenant God who's up on the mountain with our intercessor who he's also up on the mountain. We can't see him either. So let's build something we can look at and trust in. Israel is doing something devastating to themselves because they're not rejecting God completely. They still believe in him. They still believe that he exists, but they're saying, we believe you, God. We're just not going to trust you anymore. We don't want to trust in you. We're not going to find any hope in you anymore, but we're we're fine for you to hang around and stay in our life. We're going to trust in this earthly king now. We often demand from ourselves and others only what God can do for us, and that's exactly what they're going to do to Saul. You've got to be for us what God used to be for us. So it's not just a king they want. They want an idol. And in very short order, they're going to turn him into just that. Number two, the rejection. Samuel takes this request very personally. Well, if they want a new leadership, if they want a king, well, I guess that must mean they didn't appreciate me for all that I did. So he seems very offended. If they want such drastic leadership change, this is kind of a slap in the face, Samuel seems to indicate. So in verse 6, it says he prays to the Lord. He shares his displeasure to God, and here's how God responds. Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. They want to replace me, Samuel. They don't, this has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Had the elders sought God's help in this choosing, again, we can assume that this transition would have gone fine and not the way that it in fact does. They are doing what is right in their own eyes. They want the perceived, they look around themselves, oh, this nation over here, they're doing great. What do they have that we don't have? Unearthly king. So that must be the riddle. That must be the, 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 the answer to the riddle here. <coughs> I hate going to the doctor. I don't like going to the doctor at all. 
I, I put it off as long as I possibly can. Okay? If something's wrong with me, I normally just self-diagnose, which is not a good idea. Okay? And here's how my self-diagnosis normally goes. I'll be fine. That's, that's the solution to the problem. I'll be fine. If I have a virus or a fever or a broken leg, you know, I'll be fine. Like, I don't need a doctor's opinion. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Which, so stay off your feet for a while, drink a lot of water, and, and everything's going to be okay. That's no offense to any doctors in here. I'm not saying you're not brilliant in what you do. I'm telling you how I usually approach what's wrong with me. Now, a couple of weeks pass, and I'm not well, so now I've got to go to the doctor, okay? And what do they tell me? Andy, you have a bacterial infection. Here's some antibiotics. You'll be up and running in a few days. Or, sorry, it's viral. You're just going to have to leg it out, okay? What, what should I do? I sh- when something's wrong, I should immediately go to the expert. I should go to the man or woman who spent years of their life in pharmacology and physiology and anatomy and chemistry classes. They know what to do with what is wrong with me. I think I'm the expert, but I don't go to the expert first. I self-diagnose. This is what Israel is doing to themselves. We have a problem. (coughs) We don't feel secure. We're not happy. We're not satisfied with this life. We're not fulfilled in any way. So what do we need? We need an earthly king because all the other nations, they seem to be just that, happy, secure, everything's going great. And that's what they have that we don't. So that must be the solution. They don't consult God, the expert. They don't fall on their knees and plead for mercy as they have in the past. Everything is about to go terribly wrong for them. The prescription for us as God's people is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It's what our kids sang last week to us. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's really hard for us to do. Yet it is the diagnosis nevertheless. There's no caveats here. There's no yeah, but, okay? Chapter 7, they throw themselves on the mercy of God. There are no such actions in our story today. What areas of your life or what decisions in your life do you need to trust God with, but right now, you're not. You're trusting yourself or something else. How are you prescribing to God the course of action that you want him to take rather than pleading to him for his wisdom and searching his word for those answers? Israel desired a king, but more specifically, they want an idol. They want something to replace God is where they go to to find happiness and security and joy and all that they need. (coughs) Kevin DeYoung is the senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he recently wrote a brief article on idolatry. Uh, and I'm going to quote a good bit of it here for you now. He, he, he begins the article with nine characteristics of ancient idolatry. And here they are. Number one, idolatry was guaranteed. He says the formula was actually really simple. You carve an image out of wood or stone, the God enters into that icon, there you go. You got your God, and you can take him wherever you want him to go. Number two, idolatry was selfish. You scratch the God's back, and the God will scratch your back. They need food and sacrifices, and you need blessings. It's quite easy. Number three, idolatry was easy. Ancient idolatry encouraged vain religious activity. Do what you want with your life, just as long as you show up with sacrifices for your idol. Number four, idolatry was convenient. Gods in the ancient world were not hard to come by. They're almost everywhere. 
You can have them at home, and you can take them on the go with you. Number five, idolatry was normal. Literally everyone did it. It's how you believed that a woman got pregnant. It's how you believed that your crops grew or that armies conquered. Idolatry was like oil. Nothing in the ancient world ran without it. Number six, idolatry was logical to them. Nations are different. Peoples are different. Wants and desires are different. So we've got to have a God to cover all of it. It's not possible that one deity could, could meet up all these things. No, we, we've got to have many. So it made sense to them to have many gods. Number seven, idolatry was pleasing to the senses. If you're going to be especially religious, it helps to be able to see your God. It's not very impressive to have a God that you cannot see. Number nine, idolatry was indulgent. Sacrificing to the gods did not often require sacrifice to the worshiper. You sacrificed food, and then you ate the food. You sacrificed drink, and then you drank the drink. Ninth and lastly, idolatry was sensual. Sex on earth meant sex in heaven, and sex in heaven meant big rain and big harvests and multiplying herds. We say all this list, and we think to ourselves, that's nice, but that's not our problem. I don't have an image that I have in my bedroom that I go and sacrifice things to. Yeah, but you got idols all the same. De Young closes his article in this way. Can't you see the attraction of idolatry? Let's see. I want spirituality that gets me a lot, that costs me very little. It's easy to see and it's easy to do. It has very few ethical or doctrinal boundaries. It guarantees me success. It feels really good. And it doesn't offend those around me. He says, now that'll preach. And he's right. And we want the exact same things with our Christianity very often, or with our life. We just go after it in different ways. Don't you want a faith that guarantees you success and happiness? Yes, we do. Give me, believe in Jesus and all your hopes and dreams are going to come true. You know that's incorrect, but it's what you want. Give me a discipleship that's always convenient. Don't tell me I've got to join a Bible study that, that tells me I have to have an hour of homework every week. I don't want to do something like that. That's not convenient. That's not easy. Give me 140 characters on a tweet. I can memorize it and be inspired by it. We don't want a discipleship that actually asks something from us, that we commit to. We want a religion that is ritualistic. Give me a list of things to do that makes God happy with me. I'll do it. Or we want a spirituality that no matter what, it encourages sexual expression. Because we too want to follow a God in a way, in way that makes sense to others, it feels good to us, it's easy to see and understand. We're idolatrous just as Israel was idolatrous. If you look around, if you're honest with yourself about your own idols, you know that you have them just as they did, but maybe in a different way. We put our job on the throne of our life. We put our family on the throne of our life. We put all sorts of things and say, you must fulfill me. You must make me happy. You must satisfy me. But only God can do those things. So what's the result? Number three, God instructs Samuel to obey the voice of the people and to give them a king. But before he does that, Samuel, you need to tell them exactly what's going to happen. Okay? Be honest with them about what they're really asking for. The king that they're going to be given, it says it's going to take from them. The word take is repeated six times in verses 10 to 18. Now, in the Bible, an Old Testament narrative, 
There's no bold print, as you know, in your Bible. Yeah, there's no underlining. There's no all caps, right? There's no, look at this. This is really important. So writers of Old Testament narrative, this is how they emphasize. They repeat something. So anytime you're reading an Old Testament passage and a word or phrase is repeated, listen up. Because the author is clearly telling us really, really important. So take is repeated six times. The word is translated to mean to take injuriously or to take by force. In other words, the king's not going to come to them and say, if you don't mind, people, I'm going to request some things from you, and if you would just give them to me. No, he's going to take them from them. He's going to take their sons by force and made to be the king's horsemen. The king is going to take their daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to take the best of their fields and vineyards. He's going to take their hard-earned crops. He's going to take a tenth of their grain and vineyards and give it to his officers. He's going to take their servants, and he's going to take a tenth of their flocks. Israel, you're so starry-eyed about this king, but God has continually given and given and given. And this new king who you want to be a substitute, he's going to take and take and take from you. And not only is he going to take, he's going to take those things and give them to himself in the running of his administration. Israel, you thought that Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons, were really corrupt? Just wait till you get a load of the new king. He's going to be far worse than you ever imagined. Israel, think of your kids. Think of these drastic changes. He's going to tax you. He's going to take from you. He's going to be tyrannical. And what's more is this is going to be standard operating procedure for the king. It's not going to be unusual. It's going to be normative. Do you understand, Israel? And they respond in verse 19 and 20. No. There shall be a king over us, that we may, be also, that we may also be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Very similar language is used of God in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Fight our battles, be like the nations, go out before us. Greg Beale says that an idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. Whatever it clings to or relies on for ultimate security. Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart. If I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning, then I will know I have value, then I will feel significant and secure. What is it for you that you look to and you say, I have to have that to feel secure and safe in this life. Maybe you put that burden upon your spouse. You must make me feel secure in this life. You must give me the things that I want. You must make me happy. You must fulfill me in every way. Many of us look to our job to do that. I find value in that. I find worth. I find security in it. I want it to do those things for me. Sometimes we place that burden upon our children. We find our value and our worth in them. Or we find it in our portfolio, in our money, in our retirement plan. Only in that am I going to really feel secure in this world. These are our personal idols. These personal idols, you know these about yourself. If you don't, pray that the Lord would show them to you. But we don't just have personal idols, do we? We have corporate idols. We can also have community idols. We can even have idols as a church. And so what do we do with those idols? You see, for some of us, we idolize institutions. We idolize a political party. We idolize a church building. 
We idolize a particular worship style. We idolize formality. We idolize tradition. We idolize the way we have always done it. And we look to these things to find security and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy rather than finding those things in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that those things are unimportant or or irrelevant. They're not. But they're not ultimate. Yet we insist on them being ultimate. We insist on looking to them to provide for us only that which God can. For others of us, we idolize change. We idolize choices and individualism. We idolize authenticity. We idolize having it our way, and we idolize informality. We idolize a worship style. We have disdain for institutions, thinking that our point of view is infallible and somehow untainted by everything else. And we look to these things to find security and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy, rather than finding them in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not that these things are unimportant or irrelevant, but they're not ultimate, yet we insist on making them ultimate. Instead of holding these things loosely and wanting to exalt and praise and worship our God. All the while we don't listen to the tale of 1 Samuel chapter 7. We turn these things into idols because they have become our God. Greg Veal, one more time, from his book, We Become What We Worship. Therein lies the root of all other forms of idolatry. We deify our own capacities and thereby make gods of ourselves and our choices and all their implications. Is that not it right there? We deify our own capacities. I know what is best for me. I know what is best for this church. I know what is best for everything because we deify our thoughts, our emotions, our own capacities. All the while, we look to God and say, God, I'm not going to trust you with my family or with this church or with my finances because I think if I do, you're going to screw it up. And so we idolize ourselves. We deify our capacities. We take these things and say, no, I must look to them because only in them can I find it. God, I don't trust you to do it despite your perfect track record of doing just that for me and for this church and whatever the case may be. Samuel then tells God of the determination of the people to have a king. God instructs Samuel, grant their request. It seems odd, doesn't it? Why would God grant a request knowing that in granting that request, it's going to be harmful to his people? Why? Why does he allow it? I think Romans chapter 1 verse 26 helps us here. It's a verse in the Bible that you've got to pause at. I'm going to shudder by it a little bit. Paul says, and God turned them over to the desires of their heart. Israel doesn't want to listen to reason. They don't want to listen to to warnings at all. They're uninterested in that. And so God finally looks to Samuel and says, Samuel, give them exactly what they want. Give them what they want. Which sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I wish that God would say that to me. Andy, you can have everything that you want. You can have it all, whatever you want. It's yours right now. What a life. This is not a blessing to them. This is a judgment to Israel. God, yes, he is merciful and kind to us when he gives us that which we need, but he's equally merciful and kind when he withholds from us that which we think we want or need. How many of us in here right now, you're mad at God for not answering a prayer in the way that you wanted him to? Why would he not do that? Well, could it be that he's protecting you from you? This passage is making it clear that sometimes God grants requests 
even to the requester's peril. So it should teach us not to be upset when God doesn't give us what we want. We are patient and we are trusting in him. We hold on to these things loosely. We offer our request to his feet and we lay them there, entrusting him with them that he may act in our best interest and to his glory. God often answers our prayers with a no, and this does not speak to his indifference. It speaks to his kindness towards us. Finally, the remedy, number four. Israel wants a king so they can be like everybody else. It's not that God has failed them. He hasn't failed them. He's protected them and provided for them at every step. He's been a king, a leader, a warrior, a provider. He's been everything. But Israel wants to be like the nations. They want someone to go out and win battles. They want someone to judge. They want someone that they can see. You know, as Christians today, we understand this. Don't you look out to the world and say, man, they look happy. Man, they seem secure. Man, they seem to have everything. I want that. I want that security. I want that, that life. And so we go after it. We want to be like them. We think, God's not going to give me what I want, so I better go do all the things that the world is because it seems like that's the only way I can get it. And so we do understand that mindset. But let us not forget that being a follower of Jesus Christ today in our culture, it's strange, isn't it? It's just strange. Someone who holds to a historic faith, to absolute truth, it's weird. Even in the Christian community, to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture to believe in historic Adam and Eve, the virgin birth, it's strange. So we must stop pretending or deceiving ourselves that we can fit in with the nations while at the same time faithfully loving and serving God and pursuing holiness. But we want to be like the nations. We want to be like the culture. But remember something, you're not like the nations. You're unique. You've been bought with a price. You are, you are sons and daughters of the God Most High. You're not like the nations. It's not something that we say boastfully or, or haughtily or we're hanging it over people's heads. You're not like the nations. You're different. We're blessed. We're, we're uniquely blessed by a heavenly Father who gives us all things and one day will take us to be with him in heaven. We, you are not like the nations. But often we're uninterested in showing that difference because we don't want to be different. Yet our definition of everything is different. We look at marriage differently and success and happiness and good differently. But even still, we don't listen to the warnings and the pitfalls of stories such as this. Because Samuel makes it clear what's going to happen to them when they get the king of their heart's desire. They will become slaves. They will want that thing to do for them only that which God can, and that thing won't give, that thing's going to take, and take, and take, and take, and take. And our idols do the same thing. They take our time, they take our energy, they take our money, and they don't give anything in return. They hurt us, they hurt our families, they hurt our churches. The idols don't give, the idols take. So let us come to God in the way that they did in 1 Samuel 7. I don't have anything. I'm not deifying one capacity of my own. I'm coming to you, Lord. Help me and have mercy upon me. And let us turn to the true king. Let us turn to what I call the remedy of it all. You see, for us, as we read this story, you know what's coming. Right? You know that David's coming next. 
a much better king. And we can't call him the ultimate king because he's going to do some taking of his own, is he not? But there's a great and ultimate king that David is going to point us to. He's going to point us to a king that gives. And he gives and he gives and he gives of himself. And yes, he expects something from you. He expects you to give. He expects you to give of yourself to everyone that you know, to your family members and to your coworkers and to the people that you run into each and every day. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us and encourage us. He is continually giving. He's continually giving to us now as he makes intercession for us. All of our earthly kings and idols take, but Jesus Christ gives. All of our earthly kings and idols make promises, but they don't keep them. Christ keeps his promises completely and always. So what are your idols? This passage is telling us that this is a really, really important question for us to answer and to be certain of. What do you idolize? And do you need to remove it from your life or perhaps you need to demote it from its ultimate place right now to its proper place? What is your heart yearning for that you're not looking to God to fulfill or to put in right perspective for you? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, we serve a good king that gives and that loves. Now, yes, once you come to him, he's going to expect a lot of you. He's going to expect that you give to others. He's expecting that you're going to give worship back to him because he's worthy of that worship. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, are you giving of yourself in that way? And are you trying to rid your life of those idols where you obscure the majesty of God and you remove him from his throne and you have put something else up there? Let us not do that. Let us worship God. Let us let him be the ultimate thing in all that we do, in all that we are. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for passages such as this. We thank you for examples, Lord, and warnings, warnings to our very hearts of what it looks like to go and chase after other things, chase after other gods and other idols. Lord, that we would not do that, that we would love you, that we would love you completely, we would trust you in all things. Lord, that we would walk by faith and not by sight. And Lord, that you would glorify yourself through us, through, our, through this church. We thank you for this time of worship we've had. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.